you were talking about earlier the whole uh, mystical idea of the fiddle and all that. And I think that comes from the time when there wasn't radio, there wasn't media or anything. There was just day-to-day existence punctuated by your own singing or somebody you knew might sing or might not. But then somebody comes along with a fiddle who can play it and all this stuff happens. People want to dance and other things start happening too, you know, like, other people show up because they heard maybe that there was something going on at that house. And all of a sudden, maybe the liquor jug comes out from under the basement or whatever, you know, and people start acting different. And then Lord knows what else is going to happen. And this whole dimensional window opens up. And so it is a mystical thing. Welcome to another episode of The Telling Takes Us Home, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh, and when I was visiting Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I stopped by the home of old-time fiddler Clay Buckner. For many years, Clay played fiddle for one of my favorite string bands, the Red Clay Ramblers. The fact that his name is Clay was just a coincidence. That is, if you believe in coincidences, which, uh, I'm not sure I do. My name is Clay Buckner. I live in Carborough, North Carolina. Grew up in Alamance County, North Carolina, next county over. And um, I've been playing with the Red Clay Ramblers now since 1980. I started playing the fiddle because I was playing in the first band I was in, which was a I'm quitting college to play music band. Met a couple other guys in the drama department up at Appalachian, and I did not play the fiddle at the time. I played harmonica and spoons, and neither very well. But we started a band, and within a year or so, we were getting little gigs and spending all our time. Within, yeah, within a year, we had all quit school, and we were living in a hovel and getting some gigs. And soon after we started, we acquired a lead guitar player who was a Jerry Garcia disciple, which meant that he had knowledge of bluegrass banjo, which then somehow meant that we started playing bluegrass, even though none of us were qualified to do so. And we were successful because it was the early 70s, and anybody who could hold up a banjo in front of a crowd was guaranteed to succeed, pretty much. And so we did that for a couple of years, became pretty good friends with Merle Watson. We were in Boone, North Carolina, so that's where, right where Doc Watson and Merle lived. But anyhow, I was in this band playing spoons, harmonica, and then bongo drums, and then I graduated to conga drums. And I noticed that the guys who had guitars had chicks all the time. We'd play gigs and then wind up uh, talking to women. And in my callowness, I figured, well, my problem must be that I'm not playing a, a visually interesting instrument here. 
So I'm going to learn a visually interesting instrument. And so I went through in my mind, well, what would that be? Piano? No. Too much of a pain. Can't carry one around. Clarinet? Uh, I wonder how you play clarinet. Hmm. Sounds complicated. Trumpet? Nope. You know, I, and I just kind of went through them and I said, fiddle. Yeah, fiddle. That would be good. That's really flashy looking and you can carry it around easy. That's what I'll do. And so um, after being a professional musician for around two years, I was in a little town in, in uh, Wisconsin in the dead of winter. And I went to the phone book and looked up violin and I found, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but some some Polish guy or something, some Eastern European named guy. And so I called him up and I said, I'm looking for a fiddle. Can you sell me one? He said, yeah, I got one. How much you want to spend? And I said, oh, I was thinking about 50 bucks. And uh, he said, yeah, I got something for you. And so I went over to this guy's shop in his basement and he sold me this little fiddle that had painted on purfling and at some point had been busted into a million pieces and glued back together. And it came in a coffin case with a really cheap stick. And uh, I said, it's old. Great. And then I took it back and tried to figure out how to tune it. And nobody knew how to tune it. And over the course of weeks, I figured out how to tune it and tried to get something out of it. And it was impossible. You know, it was just, I said, well, seemed like a good idea at the time. Put it back in the case, stuck it up in the closet for at least a year and a half or something. And then a band member said, Hey, Clay, look at this. It's called a mandolin. And it, I, I understand it's tuned the same as a fiddle. And so it turned out he was right. And I learned to whack chords on this mandolin while we were playing this really horrible bluegrass music and did that for about a year. And then the band broke up. And during that time, I bought about six fiddle records and it turned out I bought a couple of Kenny Baker records, a couple of um, of old time uh, old time fiddle volume one and two or something. I think it was you know county anthologies. Did you come across the Fuzzy Mountain String Band? No, all these were not. This was I would have bought those records in about 1972, and uh, I didn't run across any. High Woods or Red Clay Ramblers or any young guy um, collaborations. It was all, you know, just uh, dead guys. Like Bunt Stevens. Um, I, I, I think the, the ones that I was listening to, there was some Clark Kessinger. I had, I had a couple of Candy Baker records of Clark Kessinger. I had Hell Broke Loose in Georgia, that anthology, and I had a couple of old-time classics, at least one volume of that. And, and the Rando family, had a Rando, a French Canadian family, a record of their stuff. So this experience of learning from records, I think, is is almost more common today because of YouTube for young people that are interested in this old tradition. So when did you get to get around some of these players for the first time, and and how different was that experience from learning off these records than to seeing these people play? Well, it was, um, I guess it was probably um, about 1973 or f maybe 74. 
I had musician friends who had been who had been a lot more exposed to people playing the fiddle and playing old time dance music, and it took me a long time to learn about arpeggios and scales. I kind of had to do that kind of like a monkey in a typewriter thing. I'd just sit around making sounds on the fiddle. After this band broke up that I was in, suddenly I found myself with nothing but time on my hands and my six-record stack, and I listened to them all the time. And uh, and I kept playing away at the fiddle until I started recognizing open string notes and uh, sort of um, stumbling through the pentatonic scale which kind of gave me this picture, this incomplete picture of what arpeggio were, you know, of what the main chord notes were. And so I was doing that by playing an open string and playing notes next to it, you know, on the string next to it to see which ones matched and all that. And so I did this like probably for about a year. And my mother gave me a National Geographic record of music from the Ozarks. Great record. I had it myself. Right. Brilliant. And the first tune I ever played was the one on there called Bunker Hill, which is like Fly Away or Sugar Hill or something like that. You know, it's, it's all the same form. And so I learned that well enough to play it to myself, you know. And then um, I had this um, day labor job. I was living in Chapel Hill at this point. And I'd worked there for about a week and I had come to the realization that there were these things called fiddler's conventions. And the very name made it sound like something that, well, I should probably go there. I can probably find something out. I can see other people do this, and I can, you know, I'm sure there's information to be had, you know. You can convene with the best of them. <laughs> and so I went to my boss on this job. I said, hey, boss, I'm thinking of going to this fiddler's convention this weekend, but I've got a hitchhike, so I'm thinking that, I'll probably get back late on, I probably have to come back on Monday. So I might be like late for work on that day. And so is it okay with you if I just like can come in late on that day? And he looked at me and said, boy, if you come in late, you might as well not come in at all. And I said, hmm. And uh, then I went home and thought about it. And I said, screw that guy. And I hitchhiked on up to Galax with, I don't even know if I had a bedroll. I can't even remember what I took. I had I took the fiddle, and I must have had a sleeping bag, and that's about it. So you hadn't gotten any girlfriends from this fiddling yet? No, I hadn't. I, I'd lost a lot of guy friends just because of making all the racket, you know. And I I, I had a, a, a very good friend who that I was uh, rooming with at the time who was very tolerant of the whole thing. And... Uh, he never once gave me a hard time, except once in a while I would ask, is this bugging you? And he'd say, well, I wouldn't mind if you went out on the porch, you know, for a little while. <laughs> and uh, There's an old proverb that says, God saved me from a bad neighbor and a beginner on the violin. I know it. Well, like, I've, come, I've been a beginner on many instruments now, and I can tell you that it could have been a tenor saxophone, but it wasn't, so it wasn't that bad. But anyhow, I went to this fiddler's convention and, of course, met lots of friendly people. And um, who, who did I see play there? I think I probably saw Tommy Gerald up there that, that weekend. Fonzie Kenimer. 
he always showed up. He was a good player, and he always showed up in overalls with this big straw hat with a really wide brim. But anyhow, I was hanging out, meeting people, and trying to play with people. And of course, I couldn't because I only knew one tune anyway, and I didn't really know what made that a tune. I just had my series of notes that I could do. And I could do it pretty rhythmically because I'd been practicing. Part of my practice was to just play taters. Da, 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 da. I was a Zen tater player, you know. That's the shuffle for uh-huh. yeah. And uh, so somebody, and so it was, it was this really great, it was the best moment I've probably ever had on the fiddle. I was play, I was standing around and trying to play something with somebody. I said, well, do you know a tune called Bunker Hill? And this guy says, sure. And um, I had learned it in A, but he was playing it on the banjo in G. And lo and behold, I transposed it and played it. And so I felt, I felt like, wow, I've learned something. I don't know how, but, you know, I, I was able to play this tune that I know in one key in a different key. And so that was enough to probably keep me at it for two or three years, you know. And so I just kind of kept up with my process and um, eventually could play lots of tunes and some years later was able to penetrate C and stuff like that, C major. A friend of mine uh, well, there, um, in West Virginia when I was first learning to play fiddle, he had some great advice, at least it worked for me. He said, uh, you know, because I'm trying to figure it all out, and there's so many things you're doing. You're so focused on the left hand at first because there's no frets, and you're right, trying to yeah. play the tunes, and of course, eventually it dawns on you, it's all about the right hand. But he said to me early on, he said, you just watch fiddlers, good fiddlers, and just watch the right hand. Don't think about why you're watching it. Just keep watching the right hand. And I, and I sort of said, why? He said, just do it, you know, kind of thing. And, it, and I used to watch Glenn Smith, this fiddler from central West Virginia, mm-hmm. and had a really elegant right wrist. And one day I was playing, and suddenly I was doing it. I could feel it, and it was him. I was almost channeling this guy, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the modern parlance. And so uh, getting back to this thing again about learning off recordings versus what it is we pick up almost in the air around the tradition itself when it's playing out, especially at a place like Galax where you have the fiddle contest. And it's such a – these are colorful characters. Um, yeah, so let's let's go on with with whatever, you know, your ideas about that. You know, what do you assimilate almost in a way that is not direct where you can say, well, somebody taught me this. This is why I play this now. Or I picked up that technique to something that's maybe more amorphous, but you sort of breathe in the tradition. What is that about? Well, I don't I don't know. I'm Certainly back then, in the mid-70s, culturally, the generation I was in was all about rejecting um, the uh, culture we'd been brought up under and trying to find something more valuable. And for me, it kind of started, of course, I was first influenced by uh, whatever popular music my peers were listening to. In high school, it was soul music. And then at the end of that time, it was Jimi Hendrix. And then it became uh, Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. And, of course, Eric Clapton, who... And, and then there were strange little spinoffs of the British blues guys like Clapton, like people like John Mayall, who played a more traditional brand of blues. 
And if you read interviews with these guys, they were talking about the guys who they first heard play it. And so I got this sense of, okay, the, the stuff that all these stars are interested in is where it came from, because that's how they were all talking. And so I had this in my mind. And I, the first melodic instrument I played was probably, uh, I was starting to learn a little blues harp, and I was listening to blues records before I got into fiddle music and stuff. Uh, and also everybody that I met who played the fiddle or played banjo or anything was all about telling stories about the old guys. And everybody was looking backwards into time through this music. And even when you just put on one of those records and listen to it, you, there was no place you could hear that. Even at fiddler's conventions, it was pale compared to the skillet liquors or... Um, most anybody except maybe Tommy Gerald, some of the guys that you listen to in West Virginia, guys who could really play that music and make it uh, speak 100% for itself, you know, the, the old masters. And so there was something that I, when I heard that sound, that sort of opened a little dimensional door in my brain and in my heart too. So the thing that I came, I, I had this whole like visual imagination about what it looked like for those guys, what the world looked like for them when they were re recording those things. Because at this point, I was born in 1952. And I was raised um, in a house that my father built with his father. They were both hand carpenters. And dad was a horrible racist, but he also knew a lot of people in the, uh, in, in just the uh, agricultural culture. You know, I grew up outside of a town across from a big field full of corn. That, and so all the people I knew were farmers or, or raised animals or, you know, or or grew crops or something. And so um, by the time I was trying to learn to play the fiddle, I could look back in time to where there wasn't air conditioning for us. The, there was hardly even, a, there wasn't really a TV to speak of or anything, just something that had a picture about the size of a grapefruit on it. And here I was in the 70s, which was then fairly modern. And so I could just see back in my time how different things were culturally. Uh, how different society was, how different life was. And so that made me really curious about how life was back in the 20s and 30s. So I had this whole sense of a lens. Anyhow, that was my visualization when I was listening to this music. But what I really, what the music did for me was when I uh, listened to uh, one of those cuts that really fired me up, that's what I internalized, what I felt when I heard that particular series of notes or that particular transition that that, that that guy made happen with his fiddle, made the tune jump up and take another level. That's what I assimilated. And so when I learned the tune, that's what I tried to put into it. And I got pretty good at, at putting those moments in, although I kind of get the notes wrong. I never could really tease out exactly what notes 
that person was playing, but I could, from memory, sort of play my impression of it. And over time, I got more and more accurate uh, about doing that. That's an important word right there is memory, because it's a lot about this old memory. You know, this idea of once we began to write things down, we gave up our memory. And this is... Um, because you talk about that transitional period, and we have this idea there's you know, been this transition going on continuously through human experience, and really, it hasn't. It's been in a couple of generations. My grandfather was born in Hell's Kitchen on 34th Street without electricity, and you had to go all the way down and use an outhouse in the back of the tenement building, and he saw a man walk on the moon. I mean, right. in one generation. Yeah, and that's a huge amount of change. And, and then you... I mean, we came to the Industrial Revolution and everything just kind of got injected with steroids and took off in the space of a century. We're going from inventing cars to being on the moon, you know, or space flight. A friend of mine, Craig Johnson, fiddle player, you might have known Craig. And at one point, um, we were talking about one time I drove all the way over to Columbus, Ohio, and this is early 70s, to get a Craig portable tape recorder. Because you're talking about, you know, these old guys would be playing these tunes and you wanted to get them and, and just, you know, you had to have that recording so you go back over and listen to it. Right. And uh, I went all you know, out of my way to get them. Of course, that was before you could slow the tunes down, which you can do now and all that. So you'd listen to that tune and just wear that cassette tape out. But uh, you'd hear this person say, well, you know, I play this tune that I heard from my grandfather. And I said to Craig one time, I said, well, you know, how did that tune not change that much? Because really, you know, in the key of D, you change a couple, three or four notes, and you got a different tune. I mean, sure. but it had an integrity. It seemed like this tune had been passed on for a good deer or whatever. And he said, well, you have to remember, Joe, back then, they heard very few man-made sounds. Yeah. And when they heard them, they really imprinted. And something played on a musical instrument was so different. And there's a part of the brain, it just imprinted. Yeah. And that's that memory idea. Yeah, it's the vocal part of your brain, I believe, uh, the part that that hears and produces song phrasing stuff. So that's what you've got with a fiddle or most wind instruments, all wind instruments. Um, and I think just kind of, uh, you were talking, this kind of goes back to, you were talking about earlier the whole uh, mystical idea of the fiddle and all that. And I think that comes from the time when there wasn't radio, there wasn't media or anything. There was just day-to-day -day existence punctuated by your own singing or somebody you knew might sing or might not. But then somebody comes along with a fiddle who can play it and all this stuff happens. People want to dance and other things start happening too. You know, like other people show up because they heard maybe that there was something going on at that house. And all of a sudden, maybe the liquor jug comes out from under the basement or whatever, you know, and people start acting different. And then Lord knows what else is going to happen. And this whole dimensional window opens up. And so it is a mystical thing. It is a vehicle of magic. And nowadays, it's just another damn instrument, you know. And so people don't really have that sense about it unless they're really romantic people who tend to... Uh, Tend to channel. <laughs> Let's take a break in our conversation now to hear the Red Clay Ramblers perform a well-known song, Cotton-Eyed Joe, from their music CD, Rambler. 
Clay plays the fiddle and provides the lead vocal. Way back yonder a long time ago, Daddy had a man called a cotton-eyed Joe. Flew into town on a traveling show, and nobody danced like the cotton-eyed Joe. Mama's at the window, mama's at the door, she can't see nothing but the cotton-eyed Joe. Daddy held the fiddle, I held the bow, and we beat the hell out of cotton-eyed Joe. Cotton-eyed Joe, cotton-eyed Joe, where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Made himself a fiddle and he made himself a bow and he made a little tune called the Cotton Eye Joe. Had not have been for the Cotton Eye Joe, I'd have been married some 40 years ago. Cotton Eye Joe, Cotton Eye Joe, where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Daddy won't say, but I think he knows Whatever happened to the cotton-eyed Joe Cotton-eyed Joe, cotton-eyed Joe Where did you come from, where did you go? Where did you come from, where did you go? Where did you come from, cotton-eyed So tell me about the Ray Clay Ramblers, how that came about. Well, I'm not an original member, so I can't witness to the origin of the band. But um, I believe originally it was Tommy and Bill Hicks and Jim Watson. And um, they played as a trio until 
not long after they started, Mike Craver joined them. They were a quartet. And after they'd been a quartet for four or five years, Jack Herrick uh, joined. Well, they were doing Diamond Studs, and Jack came on as a character in that show. Tell me about this uh, Diamond Studs. Okay, well, Diamond Studs was a, a co-written by the cast members, more or less, but the songs were mainly provided by Jim Wan and Bland Simpson, both of whom were part of the Fidelity Street Choir, which was uh, more of a songwriting kind of rock and roll outfit. And the Ramblers started off as an old-time string band revival band. They were preceded by the Hollow Rock String Band with Tommy Thompson, Jim Watson, well, originally Tommy Thompson, Alan Jabour, and Tommy's wife, Jessie, and Bertram Levy, I think. But Tommy and Alan did a lot of field collecting of a number of people, most, uh, most specifically Henry Reed in Glen Lynn, Virginia. And so they spent a lot of time making field recordings and learning tunes from old guys directly from them rather than from recordings. And that repertoire became the basis of the um, Hollow Rock String Band. And then um, after that, Tommy and Jim, who joined that band after its inception, Tommy, Bill Hicks, and Jim Watson became the Red Clay Ramblers. And they were still basically playing the old-time string band repertoire, but they were adding in other music that they heard from the similar period, from the 20s through the 40s. And that repertoire included uh, blues songs and jug band songs and, and country, you know, country songs, white and black musics. And some, uh, Ir- and some Irish tunes. Yeah, and, and the occasional Irish tune, but I have a feeling that probably happened after Jack joined the band. But I wasn't really there for that. I joined in 1980, and they started the Ramblers in probably uh, 19, early, early 70s, you know, 70, 72, something like that. And that then, um, once Mike Craver was in there, and perhaps before that, I don't know Tommy's songwriting history. I don't know when he first began to write songs. But I know that the team of Craver and Thompson was produced some really great songs, as well as some of Tommy's own songs, like uh, Twisted Laurel was just him, I believe. But uh, Merchant's Lunch, one of the uh, timeless favorites of uh, band of the Red Clay Ramblers fans, that was uh, Tommy and Mike together came up with that. And um, so I, I believe probably the band's strength Although they're, well, it's just hard to say what the greatest achievement was, but they became a really um, distinct and and marvelous old-time string band with um, just extremely high quality of singing and um, a really great quality of playing as well. But then the songwriting thing came out of the band that was, I think, more notable than than the uh, reproductive prowess of, you know, of, of recycling old songs. The The best songs from the early years of the Ramblers are some of the best stuff I've ever heard, and, and I'm still just, still taken away by some of it, you know. So you've been playing for a lot of years. I'd love to, just tell me a little bit of what it was like to play with uh, 
in the production of Full Moon, because I, I got to see that in San Francisco, and I was enthralled. I just laughed my <laughs> I laughed my ass off. And But the music was so interesting to be part of that, because it, it could have been done with pre-recorded music, but all the timing issues would have been so different. This truly was like the old circus bands. They followed what was going on. They could speed up. They could slow down. So give me an experience for you as a musician what that whole, how that project worked. Well, it was really easy. That was one of the great things about it. All we had to do was play our music. And those, those guys did their thing and we did our thing. We just did it on stage together while we were paying attention. And so they could come over and get involved with us if, if they wanted to or not. And we could put together music around their routine so we could underscore. And then after they finished a, a piece, they could go mop off and we could play a tune and then they'd come back on. And so we're just segueing all the time. We didn't really have to come up with um, too much stuff that we didn't already do. How'd the idea come up? We were doing a movie for Sam Shepard called Silent Tongue out near Roswell, New Mexico, out on the King Ranch. And it turned out that it was about a medicine show. And uh, that medicine show contained a string band, and it also contained a couple of clowns. And so Bill Irwin and Dave Shiner were both working as part of that movie, and so were we. And so in between takes, there's a lot of time goes by. And so we spent a lot of time just riffing around and they'd be riffing around and we really kind of had a lot of fun doing it. We it got to where we would sort of play the same sets of tunes, uh, a series of tunes, and they would kind of be doing a series of stuff together. And would they be entertaining the other cast members and gophers and all this too? Well, yeah, I mean, whoever wasn't busy would be standing around going, Damn, look at them clowns. <laughs> Damn, what about, that, what about that music? That's kind of interesting, you know. And, and so we, this was like a two-month shoot or something, if I remember right. And then it was in the summer out there on the, high, on the Llano, in the high plateau, high desert. And um, that winter, Dave Shiner had a slot in the Serious Fun Festival. They said, okay, Shiner, do something for Serious Fun. He said, hmm. I'm going to call Bill Irwin and the Red Clay Ramblers, and we're going to do a half-hour show for that serious fun festival. So we did. And um, Where was that held? That was in New York. Um, I can't remember exactly where the theater was, but um, you know, it was part of a big comedy festival. And we did our slot, I think, two nights one weekend. And I'm sure uh, Dave and Bill both had producers already you know, that they were working with. And people were down there, and... After a couple of those, uh, producers started slapping leather, and next thing I know, like three months later, we're moving to New York and putting together a Broadway show. And it ran for about nine months and uh, was really great, you know. It was really easy to do. And again, it was something that was coming totally from left field for the New York theater audience. Everybody was going, wow, this is bizarre. And they loved it, you know, just because it was so unexpected. And it was good theater. It was good good quality performance, you know. And and so there was a there was a great chemistry there just in doing it that way it was almost vaudeville. Except the band gets out of the pit and they don't have to play horns and stuff. Or I mean, they can play string band music. 
And so we did a long run in New York, and then we did another, uh, then we did a long run in Europe. We did a pretty long run out of the Doolittle in L.A. Did the three or four more uh, limited Broadway runs, you know. Yeah, we we saw you at the Gary Theater, I think it was yeah. in San Francisco. We did like three more, two more, at least two or three more New York runs, and the San a couple of San Francisco runs. So this instrument that uh, you eventually gravitated to after all these other, from bongos and, and spoons uh, to the violin, uh, it's taken you on quite a journey. It certainly has, and it's been, a, for me, a very, um, it's given me a relationship with myself that I otherwise would not have. Um, and spending a lot of time alone learning to play the instrument and learning to persevere at it, learning to keep doing it instead of going, oh man, this is way too much trouble. Uh, there was something about it that always kept me trying and always kept me um, patient with, 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 um, with the failures of it. Because it's, it's always been more failure than success, you know, to try to achieve something it's always something that you can't do that you're trying to learn to do and and that's more failure than success and then over time you win and having a band like the red clay ramblers it's always going to be pushing you well yeah that's always been kind of um more push than anything else because there's a, a lot of songs from the uh jazz tradition and jug band tradition where i'm like okay what key is that in what? Be flat? Well, okay. Can't you can't you put a capo? <laughs> yeah. I, okay, I can learn to play in B flat, but but I, what are those chords? How does that work? And so it's taken me like years and years and years to to begin to understand circle of fifths and how to play two five and six two five chord progressions, and um, so there's a whole kind of thing of how to do that that is not contained in the string band tradition as far as I know trying to play the fiddle like a horn yet without the violin chops to actually really play jazz good you know so I've been kind of faking it for like 40 years or something now you know it's, it's, so it's like okay I can do something here but I don't know what <laughs> What what fiddle are you playing now? What fiddle? Yeah, physically. What what violin is your? I've got a couple of them. Um, they were both sold to me as Italian instruments, and of course, were made in Saxony. But um, I've got a loud one and a little more quiet one, and um, don't have names for them. I I don't really. I mean, I, one's an Amati copy, and the other one is a Strad copy, I suppose, or but, maybe in between. You know. But one's not Mini or Gertrude or. No, I don't have names for them. It's just you and you. Yeah, loud one and quiet one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 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 session one, and then the the one where I'm trying to fight my way past a drum kit and an electric bass and electric piano and an accordion. <laughs> you know, without a pickup. And you're doing a lot of teaching now. Not really right now. I, I, year, some years back, I was doing a bunch of teaching, um, but I. I haven't really had too many calls here lately. I've been uh, been just doing my day job, which is like doing remodels and stuff. Like everybody else with some carpentry skills, you're doing remods. For and people. so you're 
Always watching your fingers. Not enough, really. Um, I've still got them all, but I've found that um, I really have to cut myself pretty bad on the fingertip to be able to not play. So I do try to not cut myself and try not to bash myself. Yeah. Um, it would seem like with you know such a sophistication in the way that we teach the violin, and there's different ways. Suzuki, of course, there's so many young players coming up that are just brilliant. Yeah. Because they've had Suzuki or they've had some other system. And and they're coming, some of them, to the traditional music world A lot are, with yeah. these chops. Yep. You've taken this other path, which is very similar to the path I've taken, which is all the self-learning. Yeah. And uh, it would seem like it's a very inefficient way to get to where you are with your relationship to the violin. Although I think there's kind of this inverse relationship. It, it gives you something else that the person who's had this training and got there a lot faster. I don't know if you can do anything with that question. Well, yeah, I, th I think there is a trade-off there. And it's kind of obvious, at least to me, that if you learn your technique on your own, it's a very personal thing. And you learn it by absorbing music that moves you. And you know exactly what about that music moves you. And that's what you try to make happen with what you know how to do, which means that you have a set of tools and you have a goal at any given moment. And the set of tools is never exactly what you need to meet your goal. And so you have to improvise and you have to compromise and you have to figure out how you're, okay, you're not going to be able to do that, but you can do this instead. And that is a very rich teaching tool right there. And so I think if you do Suzuki, you come out with the same set of tools, more or less, whoever you are. You learn your basic, your bowing, as near as I can tell, the people that I, I've um, taught who were Suzuki players and who maybe were classical players all have this, the same uh, bowing that is a, a good, strong orchestral bow from the shoulder that gives you maximum volume and um, pretty good tone, but it is exactly what you don't need to play rhythmic dance music. And so I've, I've, I've learned what the difference to my taste is between those two techniques, which means that I can teach somebody who does that how to do what I do if they're willing to put the time in to do it. I like your idea that the tunes you set out to learn, because in the tradition you don't learn scales. You learn Soldier's Joy. Right. Or Over the Waterfall. And that's how you're learning the key of D. Right. But you're always learning tunes that have somehow enchanted you to some level where you want to play in a jam with somebody and you know it's a cool tune. And you want that vibe that you get when everybody gets in that groove, that trance kind of thing. Right. You never really play music you wouldn't have cared about just because it came up on the sheet in that time to play it. Well, uh, I suppose, although, you know... It's an interesting in, idea. I had not thought of it in those terms. But, it, you know, in sessions, you always wind up playing tunes you'd rather not for your own self, but but it's well worth it if other people are, are you know, are getting something to gel. But uh, one thing I have learned over time is how to play a tune without playing a tune. Everybody's playing this tune, so I don't have to play that tune. I can... I can I'm free to play chords under there, or I can just go chugga-chugga-chugga and make it sound really way better as an ensemble sometimes 
you know, if I'm lucky. But I can explore a secondary role, which can be a lot more exciting sometimes, and add more to the total sound than playing the bestest version of St. Anne's Real or Liberty or whatever, you know. So you're that percussive, almost African thing again. Right. You can go about. back to, if you've learned how to play arpeggio and you, you know what the chord notes are, which over time you can't help it, then you're free to extemporize a little bit more, you know, and, and improvise and help somebody else sound like three guys instead of two guys, if that makes any sense. Um, it turns out that learning your, your rudiments is a great thing to do um, in the left hand. So you spend this entire life learning this, developing this relationship with this box, with these four strings on it, these metal strings. Yeah. Then, then you die. That's pretty much it. <laughs> and if you're lucky, maybe somebody shows up at your, at your funeral. I don't know. But you're not going to care because you're dead. Did you, you think you get to play some other place down uh, the road? I got no idea. But I, I, I'm trying to make sure that I play as much as I can here because I'm not guaranteed um, a fiddle on the other side. So, If the preachers are right, there's none to be had where you're going. <laughs> if the preachers are right, I'm, <laughs> I'm damned in the first place for playing it. Well, I, I love the idea of the old sailors, uh, the name for the day of Valhalla, the place they would go where there was there was uh, as much rum as they wanted, as much tobacco as they could stand, as much dancing, and it's called Fiddler's Green. Oh, yeah. Is that is that where the sailors go? Yeah, they go to Fiddler's Green. I didn't, I, nobody ever told me that, but I'm glad to know about it. If I have a chance, I'll check it out when I pass over. It's like that joke where, uh, you know, the baseball player the two guys and the one guy says, you know, whoever goes first, come back and tell us if there's baseball in heaven. And the guy comes back as a ghost, says, I got good news and bad news. There <laughs> is baseball and you're starting on Tuesday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so maybe there's a dance you've got to play over there. Well, Anyhow. that's a pretty good joke. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. I wish we could have another hour. We could probably just go into all kinds of things. Well, if you, um, you know, if you got time, I'm, well, I'm, Certainly willing to make time if you want to set up again and you have time in your obviously busy schedule. I'm happy to be available. So that's great. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. That's R-O-S-I-N-T-H-E-B-O-W dot org. And we sure could use your financial support, so if you're able to make a donation, please do so at our website. Again, the address is rosinthebow.org. The poet Eggerly Masters had a soft spot for country fiddlers. In his best-known work, A Spoon River Anthology, he dedicated two of his poems to these rather eccentric characters. Let me leave you now with a short passage from his memoir. It's about an encounter he had with one particular old-time fiddler, a man with one foot in the civilized world and the other in the mysterious world of nature. 
Down the road we went, up the hill, into the beginning of the grove, over the bridge which crossed Concord Creek, and up a steeper hill at whose top we climbed the rail fence, and made our way through the brush and the darkness of the shadowing oaks to the midst of the forest where the hut of the fiddler stood. The stars shone over us, or perhaps the moon. The whippoorwills were calling from the mysterious fastness around us, and my heart danced with the magical wonder of the hour. When we came to the front of the hut, there sat Atkinson, the fiddler, resting under the stars and in the refreshing coolness of the night from the hot toil of the day. Thank you.